Hi, Michaela. Hello, Steve. So today we're going to be answering viewer questions. And the first of those is how to stop obsessive thoughts about a new partner. Mm. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, well, let, let's say, of course, you know, we have to go, why are the obsessive thoughts about the new partner and uh, what what is actually happening there? But in general, when we meet someone to begin with, right, and it's a new and exciting thing, that typically stirs up a lot of different uh, emotions and also obsessions. And that's pretty normal, I think, uh, to begin with, unless it, of course, uh, takes up all the um, available bandwidth and uh, it takes up, you know, uh, more space than, than it should. So some of the things that happen when people first meet, of course, and this plays into what happens later, which often people ask about. So when people first meet, it's all new and very exciting. And that first very precious moment of realizing that, you know, you like someone and then you get to know them and it becomes apparent that it's mutual and you get together. And then uh, you get to the point where somebody calls them a new partner, meaning something has been established that makes it that it, the relationship is going somewhere, wherever that is. There's a lot in there that we can unpack. And so the first thing, of course, is that what makes us attracted to people has a lot to do with our previous imprints. And it has to do both with imprints from, let's say, childhood. Some people talk about attachment styles, of course, which is only a very, very small fraction of what plays into when we uh, are attracted to somebody. So there's, let's say, attachment style in the context of we like it when people behave a certain way. Right? That's just, that's one aspect. And when I'm saying we like it when people behave a certain way, uh, it's known to us or it's the reciprocal or sympathetic to what we have going on. So there's that um, our, our, you know, imprints and relational body, mind, and how it kind of links in with somebody else's. That also has to do with how we've seen relationship as, uh, you know, in, as in our formative years, let's put it this way, both in the people who um, raised us, mostly our parents, not true for everyone, but people who raised us, as well as um, how we were related to by our parents. So, those kind of imprints form a really interesting cocktail of information in our body that then makes us attracted to certain people. And um, that, that's something that one can explore. There isn't much you can do about it other than bring it to light so you're aware of some of the pitfalls of that, uh, particularly if you've had uh, some you know, not so great uh, relationship imprints. And uh, some of the more common themes here is that love was given in a very conditional way, meaning there was a lot attached to um, the child having received love, good behavior, or love was only given or attention was only given when they actually acted out badly or were very unruly and otherwise they were neglected, or there was a smothering and an over 
um, active involvement by a parent uh, or an inappropriate involvement by a parent. So there's there's some common themes where we um, know that as love, but also often we don't want to be loved like that because it was very painful and dysfunctional. And those two things make uh, for a very unpleasant uh, situation because some part of us goes, ah, typically a very young part of us says, ah, yes, now we're receiving love the way we we want it, meaning how we were imprinted. And then the more adult part of us goes, this is abusive or dysfunctional, or I don't want to chase somebody for their attention like I had to chase my parents. So there is a lot in there. We could devote an entire episode just on how that plays out. Um, and then from there, of course, um, there is uh, our earlier relationship imprints, meaning how we first actually engaged in, let's say, um, sexual activity as well as relational activity and our first uh, rejections or breakups or um, positive experiences that also kind of play a role in in the way we connect with a new partner. So that all said, uh, coming back to the question of why am I so obsessed with my new partner or why have you obsessive thoughts about the new partner? Some of it comes from what I just talked about, which is that sometimes we have patterns of, uh, let's say, abandonment or refusal or, um, you know, people often talk about the kind of avoidant um, or anxious attachment patterns that go typically, you know, hand in hand, where it can be that the that new partner um, in the acute phase of the newness and the excitement uh, displays the kind of behaviors that make people chase or that make this questioner chase, right? Um, or that make this questioner anxious about the state of the relationship. So that's one realm of potential to look at is that obsessive thought based on lack, fear, anxiety, previous imprints. Um, that, and that that's something that has a very specific flavor to it. Another thing that can happen, and that's more in the realm of, let's say, erotic friction or uh, sexual attraction is that because it's so new and it's so exciting and it has this really amazing uh, combination of first flush of hormones and you know bonding and all of those things and also uh, first flush of sexual excitement and connection and maybe some exploration that's new or that hasn't happened in a while or never happened. So when that kind of whole, let's say, erotic, adventurous newness gets stirred up, that's quite um compelling or obsessive or addictive, not necessarily always in a negative way. It's just, it takes up a lot of space because it's one of those primal aspects of, of all humans where that kind of erotic engagement is really exciting. And it's particularly very exciting when it's new and the newness of it and the different flavor of it can be um, quite I don't know, can take up a lot of time, let's put it this way. And of course, if that then combines with some 
previous imprints, it can become obsessive. And that's, uh, you know, not uncommon, I would say. Good news here is that typically wanes. This is bad news here is that typically wanes, meaning um, if you're really obsessed and it's kind of a thing, um, some of that will go away as the uh, the erotic part of the engagement kind of settles in. But of course, often when that happens, it feels like an abandonment or it feels like something is being taken and then that can cause obsession. So it's really quite an, quite an interesting and very finely um, sliced engagement when we look at that. And so now what can we do about it? Right. So the first thing is to distinguish what it actually is. Where is the obsession? Is it just the kind of obsession where you sit in the office and you think about last night's date and or last night's you know erotic encounter, um, and you know you start daydreaming a bit or fantasizing and you can't wait and it's just so exciting. That's one set of obsession that you know I I don't think there's much that needs to be done about it other than maybe. Um, understanding what it is and maybe refocusing the attention on occasion. Where it becomes an issue is if the obsession is based on emotional lack or relational lack or kind of a more addictive need need the sex for the validation or need the uh, connection because the relationship hasn't settled to a point where uh, somebody knows where they're standing, or it's really something that's a past imprint, even with some triggers or traumatic things. When that's determined, then really uh, the way to look at that is to talk with somebody who can put things a little bit in perspective, can can make somebody understand what's what and how do you work with it. And then, of course, another thing that can be uh, looked at is if it's kind of a combination of that just has to do with the relationship being settled or settling in some form, meaning it's not clear what kind of relationship it is. Is it just sex? Is it sex um, developing into something deeper? Is it something deeper, but it hasn't been described yet or, or defined yet? Then it might be a good idea to actually have a conversation with the partner on that. Um, and then the last thing I want to say is there is, of course, also the obsession that comes from something not being right um, and us knowing that it's not really right, but not wanting it to be wrong. And that cognitive and, and also kind of body intuitive dissonance can cause some obsession, right? So, um you think you're in a monogamous relationship with this person, but it doesn't feel like that. Or you think it has a certain depth, but they don't call you or text you on a regular basis. You think it's going one way, but it's it's going another in all the signs, but not in what's spoken. And there's this push-pull of where is he or where is she? Why is she not texting? What does this mean? Does this mean something? Oh, they are saying one thing and mean another. That's also one area that can cause some real obsessive um, situation. And that, of course, also requires kind of a good hard look at what it is, maybe asking some questions, maybe talking with some other people about it who can say, look, these are the obvious signs.
right? And uh, uh, then making adjustments around that, which of course is hard when it's exciting and new and has all this wonderful potential. What are some other signs that one's thoughts or perhaps obsessive thoughts should be looked at or one should pause and reflect on what's going on? Yeah, I think the major sign is that it interferes with the rest of, uh, you know, the life, one's life. Let me say that again. Uh, so the major sign would be that there's an interference to the way life needs to be lived. So meaning um, daily activity is um, eclipsed by those excessive thoughts. Um, work suffers interactions with other people like one's children or friends or uh, work colleagues are uh, interrupted by that uh, constant focus on the relationship. Uh, a good sign is also that when you have friends and you talk uh, to them about your new relationship, they're starting to kind of glaze over or fuzz out or even roll their eyes or, you know, make the same statement again. That's a good sign that maybe it needs to be looked at. Sometimes uh, people have friends that are uh, nice enough to say, look, you know, you need to stop already. But sometimes they don't. They just kind of start shrinking back. So those are some signs that it probably needs to be examined um, in a meaningful way. Other things, of course, are when you um, when your obsessive thoughts are producing actions that are less than optimal. And uh, things like that. In the olden days, when we didn't have cell phones, right, the, the classic one was that um, people would wait home in front of the phone all day and don't go out anymore or wouldn't go out because the person would call the moment they would, uh, you know, they would leave. So when that kind of behavior, the constant checking of text, the constant checking of phone, the stalking of that person on social media, so to speak, to see where are they, what have they posted, what are they saying, you know, when things like that start happening, the investigating of that person beyond the normal curiosity, um, uh, thoughts of, um, you know, kind of, uh, doom and gloom around the relationship um, and, and a really excessive need to please that person or to be with that person or do things for that person, um, both in their, let's say, erotic as well as in the relational domain. Those are all warning signs. Oh, and um, they should at least be examined and maybe checked with some other people who you can trust to give you an, 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 you know, an honest answer. A therapist, a really good friend who isn't going to lead you down some strange path, uh, a mentor, you know, things of that nature where you can go, mm, I think this isn't, this is detracting from my life. And and all that, of course, in the context of, um, you know, it is distracting and it it does make an impact on uh, physical well-being, time management, emotional well-being, mental state, mental health. One way I think these obsessive thoughts about a new partner or existing partner can show up is in cycles of idealization and devaluation associated with certain types of personality disorders or certain types of trauma coping patterns and so on. I wonder if that's something we ought to discuss. Yeah, I think it's worth discussing because we've all been on the giving and receiving end of some version of that, right? And that goes, like you said, from 
a mild tinge to full-blown uh, it being a proper problem, both, you know, in, in, in both domains. And so uh, one of the, the patterns that go more into, you know, childhood imprints or maladaptive behaviors is that real amazing excitement of meeting somebody new and really, really getting into it. Everything about that person is great. Um, they can't do wrong. They're the most amazing thing. He is the one or she's the one uh, hottest woman I have ever met. Most amazing, you know, whatever. Like there's all these things that that like I said, exist in a tinge because of the way we enter relationship. But some people have a tendency to go there very fully. And it's almost um, magical thinking on one end. And it can also be very disordered all the way to very disordered on the other end, where um, a lot of focus is put on that person as bringing value, bringing validation, bringing meaning, uh, bringing um you know, almost like the reason for existence in the extreme way. And that, of course, uh, can't last because it's a commodification of that person for the purpose. Meaning if this person is who I think they are, then I am uh, validated or I am now safe or I am special or I am now in a different uh, value, you know, construct or things of that nature. And um, in the worst case scenario, of course, you know, this is kind of a regression to parental issues where it's where it's daddy suddenly or mommy or, you know, or even, you know, more um, painful things from, you know, from from a very traumatic situation where, where that person becomes the the idealized savior or the idealized person who can make all of that okay. And then of course, because it's the it's it's the thing that you want and not the person, that person will fall short of the thing, of the of that, you know, uh, validation or or construct. And so that then means that first everything's amazing and that person will give enormous amount of praise. And often people who are struggling with that set of circumstances, they are really, really good at valuing and speaking to the partner's, uh, let's say, own um, issues around who they are. So they really acknowledge you the way you want to be acknowledged, or they really see things no one else has seen uh, so far. And you're like, oh yeah, I'm really being seen. I'm really being known. Or they give you something that you don't think you can have. So it, there's kind of a hooking in, in the most extreme and, and, and painful way. doesn't always have to be that extreme, right? And then, of course, when the moment comes where that person realizes they are not that, um, the, the healthy way of disengaging is just to say, well, this is no longer working or this isn't what I wanted. And then um, ending the relationship. But of course, sometimes that doesn't happen because all this entanglement has happened and the other person has their pattern too. And now it's this horrible dance of devaluating um, you know, they first brought out the very, very most amazing things of you. And now they're criticizing the very things that that hurt you the most. And they point out what's wrong with you. And now 
your pattern kicks in and you're trying to make it better or fix it for them or tell them that that's not actually true. And that's where some really codependent and, and quite um, horrible relationship patterns can form when that's taken to the extreme. And so that's something to look out for both ways is that putting up on a pedestal, ripping down and, and then in the extreme case, destroying right that person um, emotionally or even you know in, in the world because they're not giving you the thing that you absolutely have to have. And um, you know the, the, the healthy way of course is to go, oh, you're not giving me what I want. Um, is it on one end, is it realistic that I want that? If I'm saying, yeah, that is realistic that I want that, you are not giving that to me. We need to end the relationship by, you know, it was nice meeting you. And but that's typically not how it plays out, of course. Now we're in the territory of cluster, what's sometimes called cluster B or access to personality disorders, such as narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, etc. That's the more pathological end that you are beginning to discuss now. Can it, it can you're you're hinting in that direction? It seems. Yes, that is the pathological end, and of course, um, you know that's not where most people live, but. Some people live there based on a whole set of circumstances. And in that context of, let's say, obsessive thoughts or somebody having uh, obsessive thoughts about us, there is a huge difference between, let's say, a full-blown personality disorder and traits that can be organized in certain kind of typologies. We all have certain traits that show up when we get very stressed or when uh, our core wounds or core issues are being hit. But that's not the same as having a cluster B or access to full-blown diagnosis. And one of the really good things about, let's say, um, you know, people giving education on Instagram or stuff like that is that a lot more people have awareness of uh, the extreme end of what what can it be, right? A lot, there's whole channels dedicated to how do you deal with people who are narcissists or borderlines, right? And that's, uh, and I think we haven't had that in the past. And once you understand what the extreme end is, you can go, whoa, that's not acceptable to me. But we also have to make sure that we're clear that not everybody who is a bit self-centered is a full-blown narcissist or everybody who is a bit obsessive is a full-blown borderline. Uh, we all have those traits. And there's a big difference between displaying some behaviors that are maybe less than optimal and being, you know, uh, uh, having a personality disorder. So while I think the education is very important, I also do think we need to always remember we all, when pushed, Right. We all, when stressed, devolve into less than perfect behavior, right? That's just the way it goes. And so when we now coming back to, let's say, obsessive thoughts, right, um, I think we've all been there. And I think for most people that kind of can be dealt with and smoothed out and examined where, t where it can go wrong or where people come also in sessions and say this is not okay is when that when that kind of general tendency um flares up let's say in a difficult relationship experience or flares up because they now also got um 
fired from their job or their parent died or things like that. And suddenly what was a mild kind of, oh my God, I want to be with you all the time goes to, where are you? I checked your Instagram. You left your work uh, at three and it's five. Where have you been? You're going to abandon me. You know, um, you're not, you don't love me the way I need to be loved. You know, like all of that stuff can really, really flare up when there's other stressors involved. That doesn't necessarily mean you're now in bed with a narcissist. It just means it needs to be examined and some of the stressors need to be brought down. And also some of those behaviors have to be curtailed by the person doing it, actively going and seeking help, but the person experiencing it in actively setting boundaries. Okay, here's another one. Why the soul of my ex still comes out in my brain after two years? It's damn it harsh. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm assuming what the questioner is asking is that um, even after the breakup, it, that person is still very much um, present in their mind and heart and potentially body. And that kind of goes with some of the things we just talked about, which is some people leave a very strong imprint for a number of reasons, right? Maybe uh, because uh, they were really the first big love experience, right? The first time somebody's been really in love or really opened their mind, soul, body, right? She's saying soul there, she or he is saying soul there. Um, there are sometimes when we really have that big opening where we really allow somebody in for all wrong or right reasons, right? When we really, really allow somebody in, when they leave, when the relationship uh, is ended by either person, it's really quite um, a horrible thing. The, the question says the word harsh. It is a harsh thing because uh, particularly when you've built a, a relationship with somebody that involves, let's say, living together, having friends together, doing things together, uh, creating memories together, and then of course, in you know, in its extreme form, um, having children together, business together, property together. When the relationship ends, and that actually um, means a severing of the relationship can be really, really brutal because everything we do um, has now the flavor of the loss of that relationship. And uh, that's that's very you know, upsetting, particularly when it has a lot of meaning attached to it. And the meaning can be in a few different domains. It can be in the domain of deepest love relationship, uh, was married, wanted to be together forever, right? Like that kind of depth of, of engagement where you opened yourself up to somebody very deeply. Can also um, happen, of course, in the sexual domain where the erotic imprint of that person was so strong, either because it was a first imprint or it was the best uh, erotic situation or there was kind of, you know, often our best erotic um, uh, memories or imprints have a bit of, let's say, darker, more dangerous um, 
strains to them, you know, whatever you want to call that, where it's a bit risque or you open yourself a bit more than you have before, or it's a certain kind of erotic engagement that feels, um, you know, taboo, but within the context of a relationship, it's cool. Or, you know, there was a lot of experimentation. All of that can create a very deep erotic imprint. And often those deep erotic imprints particularly in the partner who opens their body physically, right? So uh, meaning in, 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 you know, in whatever erotic engagement, there's typically one partner, not always, but there's one partner who kind of also opens their body and the other partner who kind of enters into that domain in some way, um, as a as a general play of you know the erotic, so typically the partner who opens has a very deep imprint of um, having opened and having let that in. And of course, physically speaking, you know, there's all kinds of re research now that that also has you know physical um, implications. But just from an because uh, you know the question was about the soul, that imprint sometimes can be really really deep and often you'll see that people replace the imprint of their ex with somebody else so that they can move on, right? That's where the whole rebound relationship comes from, where the rebound sex comes from. And often people also don't leave their partners um, where, till they have a replacement or they have a fling or something like that, that kind of we, you know, reduce that imprint in, in, the, in, the, in the body, mind, soul, um, sense. And that's often done. And sometimes that works great. And sometimes it doesn't because it doesn't scratch the itch of that depth or that imprint. And of course, the deepest imprint is what we're living with, so to speak. And that sometimes people describe it as like, it's a, it's like a hole that is shaped as that person, or it's a hole that's shaped as that activity that was so deeply imprinting. And so to the question of the of that that was posed there on Instagram, the help part, how do you deal with that? Is um, yeah, it is sometimes useful to replace the imprint with somebody else. And that's what most people do. And there's nothing um innately wrong with that. The problem is just when they leave, you know, you have to do it again and again and again. And sometimes it's just good to know that one can replace an imprint and that's enough for people to go, oh, okay, I do need to go out and kind of re-imprint re, re myself or reopen myself to a different experience that makes this less painful. That's, you know, of course, an easier way to deal with it. There's also another way to deal with it, which requires a little, little bit more attention and practice and wherewithal. But I talk about that in the Wild Women's uh, Way uh, intensives often, where people come with that question specifically of how do I get out of what, attracting a certain kind of a partner? And how do I re-imprint my system? And how do I get a deep sexual imprint out? And the if you want to do that, it requires a bit of work, but it is doable. And one of the ways to do it is to make the imprint a non-specific, like a non-human imprint um, that can be done by 
uh, imprinting towards nature. It can be done uh, by imprinting towards, let's say, a um, God image, whatever that means. It means a different thing to different people, right? Like a universal beneficial um, imprint that that's so much bigger and so much vaster and so much more um, open and hence also not fraught with the relational difficulty um, that you can imprint with. And the way you can do it specifically is through pleasure practice, uh, meaning through bringing body, the body into pleasure and then opening the heart and, and the orientation towards something that's not specific to one person. Because also the problem that's somewhat alluded to in that question is that often the person who opens themselves, their whole sexual orientation, including their fantasies, is connected to that deepest imprint. And that's really rough. And that is really harsh when you've had such an amazing sexual connection and imprint and now that person is gone but your fantasy life including self-pleasure makes you always go back there and then as you go back there it really hurts because the the loss kicks in and so your erotic fantasy life your self-pleasure life is completely destroyed by thinking about that person and then feeling the pain of that loss, which often then diminishes the pleasure a lot, right? Or, or you can't even go certain places. And if you go there, then it hurts. So you're in this really odd situation, which is can be quite um, destructive and harmful and, and bad. And so the way out of that is to direct the pleasure to a non-human form, so to speak, and so to train the body through pleasure practice to um, have fantasies, so to speak, or orientations that are not specific to a partner. And that takes a bit of uh, work and it takes a bit of practice because we tend to want to go there. But when you can do that, it really frees you from that kind of ouch, harsh, pain thing. And even if you have a, a partner currently with whom you have that, to widen that imprint into, let's say, nature and whatever universal, um, you know, benevolent uh, quality you want to connect with also kind of reduces some of what we just talked about, the obsession or the obsessive thinking or the needing it from a person that way. So, in closing to your question, I think having a good, sufficient, independent self-pleasure practice that's more a spiritual, that has more of a spiritual, however people understand that, uh, dom uh, connection and the spiritual opening to life, opening to life flow, opening to nature, opening to something much vaster than a mere human, right? Uh, really allows for us to be less contracted and craven and uh, pained and attached and obsessed to the erotic partner of choice. Michaela, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Steve. <laughs>